Hey everyone, uh, Handsome Jason here. Just want to thank you for tuning in and listening to the show. We really do appreciate it. Just want to make you aware of a few things that we've got going on. First and foremost, there's the Instagram pages and the Twitter pages that we have. That's where you can find us as well as uh, some of the content that we do when we're producing these shows. But far and above beyond that, we've just recently created a website. It's www.tappedintopsychedelics.com. If you log in there, you can see all of the episodes, uh, show notes, as well as transcripts will be published so that if you're more of a uh, visual person, you'll be able to read through all the content that uh, we've discussed. Additionally, you'll find a uh, donate button on the page. So if you like the work that we're doing and you want to help us make more of that, as well as support Adam and his uh, crippling Fabergé egg addiction, uh, I would suggest that you help us out and maybe throw a few schmeckles in our direction. It really uh, goes a long way and it is appreciated. Once again, that's www.tappedintopsychedelics.com. As always, if you want more of our content or you want to find it as it releases, please ensure that you like and subscribe to Tapped Into Psychedelics wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Tapped Into Psychedelics. I'm your host, Adam Tapp, and with me is my friend and producer, Handsome Jason. And today on the podcast, we're interviewing Alex Nee, who is the CEO of Divergent Neuro. How are you doing, Alex? I'm doing well, Adam. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be on the show and I'm privileged to be uh, spending some time with you in the, the show. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate it. And, you know, our previous conversations, I'm I'm quite interested in what you do and I think so with our audience. So, you know, as sort of a, a basis, let's just sort of get into what your company does, what your specialty is and how it's sort of relevant to the psychedelic field. Yeah, absolutely. So our company is a three-year-old uh, startup based in Toronto. We use primarily brainwave uh, and brainwave-based analysis tools to help improve mental health um, through neurologically enabled training, uh, neurofeedback, and, and neural uh, analysis uh, to help advance science and therapy. So where it connects with psychedelics is we actually started the company with a psychedelic research contract back in uh, early 2021. Uh, specifically using EEG-based biomarker, that's electroencephalography, or commonly known as brain waves, uh, to help understand what is happening in individual brain activities uh, when there is psychedelic intervention happening um, as part of a therapeutic process. So uh, that's that's the tie-in with psychedelics. Yeah, and so just to help our audience understand a little bit, so how does EEG work necessarily? And... You know, say I was going to engage in EEG examination of my neurological activity, what's going on in that EEG can function and provide results that show what's going on in my brain? Yeah, of course. So on a 10,000 foot view, EEG is basically the electrical representation of our neurological activities um, that's happening every second of our existence inside our brain. So you know, a bunch of neurons fire, uh, produces a synchronous activity that gets picked up by a sensor. Uh, usually mounted on the top of your your head, um, basically that electrical activity represents the kind of engagement uh, functioning of different parts of your brain. Um, you know, we typically look at frequencies, amplitudes, different spectrum from different sites to proxy uh, what may be happening at the specific parts of the brain that the information comes from. So we use, of course, a lot of mathematical tools 
uh, machine learning AI models to understand uh, you know, how these characteristics, um, electrophysiological characteristics correlate with uh, behavior, with affective uh, characteristics and, and other things that may be going on you know, from a biopsychosocial uh, sort of layer view. Um, so in a sense, you know, it's kind of like listening to the heartbeat of your brain um, to understand how the brain is functioning. Are you paying attention, for example? Are you distracted? Are you sleepy? Are you introspective versus externally focused? Um, you know, you kind of having experiences even with altered state of consciousness versus, you know, during sort of uh, normal state of consciousness, right? So, so you can tell a lot about what the brain is going through by listening to different parts of it, um, you know, and mapping its electrophysiological activities um, on different charts. So that, that's in a sense how EEG works as a investigational tool to help us understand um, you know, more accurately and more objectively what may be happening, um, you know, correlating to some of the subjective experiences. So then my next question kind of pertains to the fact that, so, you know, I feel like anecdotally, it's it's been said that, you know, Morgan Freeman eloquently states it in his smooth voice at the start of Lucy that we only use 10% of our brain, which I think has been proven that that is extremely inaccurate. But how much of our brain is actually interacting with one another on a given non-psychedelic basis? So let's say a resting state or even a simple task-oriented state. How much of my brain is interacting with one another and how much of my neurological capacity is being used at any given time? Well, you know, that's a very good question and difficult one to answer. There's, there's variations from person to person, obviously, but uh, by and large, you've got a fair amount of your brain interacting with one another. So, you know, take the task-based example that you were just talking about. Uh, when I construct a task, let's say you know, I'm, I'm going to go out and get grocery, you know, there's a planning portion of my brain that happens in the center executive network, which is the frontal part of my brain um, that plans out, okay, well, what does that involve? And then there's the sensory motor band that basically carries out those plans step by step. And then there's the sort of somatic um, uh, limbic part of it that, you know, kind of sounds the rat alert, you know, when I cross the street and there's a car coming. So I would say, you know, a fair amount of your brain um, actually coordinates to complete day-to-day tasks, um, depends on situations, and depends on uh, the complexity and, and duration of those tasks. So, you know, predominantly, I, I like number three just because it's so easy to kind of conceptualize things in, in threes. Um, so the front part I just mentioned uh, would be one of the networks, the center executive networks, and then the, the salience network, which sits between the frontal and the default mode, uh, is sort of like the controller and, and the alarm bell <clears throat> and sort of helps regulate um, parasympathetic responses and, and different sort of limbic responses uh, coordinate that with thoughts, which comes from the front. And then the back part, which is the default mode network, is, is much more mammalian. So, you know, you've got a lot of parasympathetic responses like breathing and, and you know, intrinsic responses coming from there. So uh, most tasks would involve um, two out of the three, if not all three networks coordinating. Um, you know, we're talking about conscious tasks. Mm-hmm. And so you guys work with psychedelics quite frequently. You you suggested and said that your very first sort of introduction into this was based on psychedelics. So what is seen on like a macro dose of, let's say, psilocybin, like a tryptamine psychedelic? Like what's going on in your brain in, in that situation? Yeah, so great question. So uh, psilocybin, uh, among those other you know, compounds are classified as two-way agonists. So uh, what that does is it significantly impacts your serotonin reuptake um, uh, inhibitor and the serotonin reuptake uh, part of your brain. So 
typically what we see is a disruption in the oscillatory power uh, on the specific bands, and namely alpha, beta bands. Alpha is you know, for your information uh, between eight to twelve hertz. That's a specific frequency band, um, and then beta is between um, typically twelve to, to twenty hertz. Uh, so, you know, you, you see the, the disruption or reduction of uh, amplitude and power in these specific bands um, as a significant biomarker for most 2A agonists. Uh, this is researched, uh, of course, by uh, not another, but uh, Dr. Robin Carter Harris's team in uh, Imperial College of London, led by Dr. Chris Timmerman his colleagues, they started publishing paper really around 2018 about the um, oscillatory power oscillation and reduction uh, in the narrow band. And then also you've got this, this interesting, uh, you know, increase in synchrony, which is really something, you know, technically named Lempel-Ziff complexity, which is really kind of a way to, 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 you know, allude to what you were just talking about, uh, Adam, in, in terms of how much each one part of your brain talks to all other parts of your brain. So the other thing that Dr. Timmerman and his team notice is that you've got this significant increase of intercortical synchrony. So, so the parts are chatting more frequently. So when you see the, the brain map, it's almost as if, you know, something just, uh, just really heated up in a foundry. Like when you look at, mm. you know, you throw in a cold piece of iron into the foundry, you see the whole thing heating up. But that's kind of what's happening on a, on a brain map from an activity point of view. Yeah. So, so those are, I would say, are, are the most significant markers on, on macro dose. So it seems like it's both quieting in certain areas, but yet significantly increasing connectivity in other parts of your brain, both simultaneously, right? Yeah, something like that. I think depending on the, the specific markers, the specific um, it, you know characteristics you're looking at. So typically alpha is associated with deep relaxation and introspection. Um, so alpha emanates particularly from the hippocampal limbic part of your brain. So that's the back brain. Mm. Um, and it's a very kind of relaxing, introspective, internally focused kind of frequency band. So the reduction of alpha, you know, could be correlated typically with a set of things. Um, again, you know, Dr. Carter Harris's team investigated this, this sort of behavioral marker called alter state of consciousness, and where they, they uh, surveyed subjects that are undergoing, you know, macro dosing, uh, in this case, DMT. Um, and, you know, they notice a significant correlation between the reported altered state of consciousness uh, with the sort of uh, markers present in EEG where their, their alpha reduction is, is quite significant. In, in DMT case, uh, I think that the finding had indicated that for, you know, about 20 to 25 minutes, alpha is all completely eviscerated from the back part of the brain and the broadband alpha is significantly decreased. Uh, you know, at the same time, the global entropy is increased. So there, there's increased synchrony in terms of uh, how the brain parts are chatting. Um, and Well, increased entropy, sorry, not synchrony, it's desynchrony um, of how the brain parts are chatting with each other. So um, we don't quite understand why some of these things happen. Um, there's deeper, you know, sort of pharmacological explanation, which I don't think we have time to get into, but um, we're still finding out these markers and, and what they're relating to on a behavior side, uh, which is quite fascinating. Is there any correlation to dream states? You know, I mean, look, we spend a third of our life in an altered state of consciousness. Is there any correlation between psychedelic experience and dreaming? And I just kind yeah, of... 
And I was going to say, I just kind of want to ask as well, because that falls into a question I had about delta waves. Um, do we see an increase in delta brainwave activity in EEGs with psychedelic use? Uh, we haven't really noticed uh, delta activities quite a lot. I can be I can be a little fuzzy on the memory, but I think the most significant marker is relating to again very narrowly speaking two A um, agonists, so HRT two A um, receptors is the serotonin receptor. So there are other psychedelics, obviously like ketamine, that are um, that are affecting other receptors, GABA receptors um, that will be coupled with increase of delta space. So when you dose somebody, even with a sub-anesthetic level of ketamine, you would notice delta uh, moving probably, but uh, very different than, I guess, mushrooms and, and DMT or, or 2A class of agonists, right? So, uh, so it depends on which compounds we're talking about. Uh, but, but typically, I would say for 2A agonists, you're, you're not going to realize a lot of um, activity uh, increase in, in delta oscillatory power. Um, you, you know, mostly it's in it's in alpha and uh, and beta power reduction. Yeah, and so and again, so I'll just ask the question again: like, is there a direct correlation or any correlation between dream states necessarily and let's just say tryptamine, serotonin-based psychedelics? There are probably some interesting correlation between dream state, which is really kind of a you know, from an EEG point of view, uh, delta theta state. Um, I, I think it's a bit more complex. Um, perhaps to, to look at just the EEG uh, would be the starting point, but, but I doubt that would be sufficient to investigate the dream state connection uh, with psychedelics. Although, you know, I've read reports and science research that stipulates uh, people going through highly complex um, you know, dream state like experiences, emotional recalls, or even generative experiences that mixes part of long-term memory to you know fabricated uh, or, or invented sort of scenarios that uh, you know is sort of a mix between the two. So um, from that perspective, it, it certainly um, seems to suggest that psychedelics could trigger certain part of the brain to activate, uh, very similar to to that of a dream state, uh, especially you know in terms of lucid dreaming. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. So another question I have for you is about the DMN network or default mode network. And I, I know in like Robin Card Harris does a lot regarding that in the sense that default mode network is sort of responsible for a sense of self or our ego in the sense of, you know, individual autonomy. And during psychedelics experiences, like what happens with the default mode network? So that's a great question. So I think one of the things that I was mentioning before was you notice the sort of uh, reduction of oscillatory alpha powers. Alpha is is kind of a uh, it's a regulating frequency for default mode network. Um, so the reduction of um, alpha could be correlated, could be seen as you know sort of a reduction of um, uh, synchronous regulation of the default mode network. So you become more um, uh, basically. It's where I'm looking for. You become more in touch with your your feelings instead of being, you know, suppressive or controlling on uh, how you're feeling about certain things. It, it you know allows these limbic feelings sort of to resurface, um, um, and you have to deal with them or come to terms to them more uh, vividly or, or or up to the front. So um, I think it's sort of you know the way I look at it is, is I liken it to the removal of certain level of filtering mechanism whereby these these films are kept kind of in a in a sub ego sort of um, subconscious state where 
during intensive psychedelic experience, uh, speaking from my own experience, you know, you come to terms to these feelings quite viscerally mm. um, in a way that, you know, they, they flow kind of unobstructed from the default mode network through the salience network directly to the rest part of your brain. So it became, it became this, this sort of thing that cannot be easily contained or managed, so to speak. So a lot of times we, we develop mechanisms, you know, um, to manage our deeper feelings, such as fear. Um, that's a typical one. So, you know, a lot of times people develop mechanisms to suppress fear on a functional level that, that allows people to move through life tasks day to day without, you know, being uh, kind of crippled by fear. But, but you know, during um, a psychedelic experience, that feeling becomes a lot less capable, manageable in a way that, you know, I've come to terms with some of the deeper fear, you know, during my personal experiences, instead of, you know, uh, resorting to my usual tools, which is suppressing them, you kind of have to walk with them and learn how to come to terms as, you know, that feeling being part of who you are uh, or, or really external to you and, and being able to seeing that as an external entity and coming to terms as it is, uh, is something that's, it's quite interesting, I guess, during psychedelic experiences. So then from a connective level, would you see an increase or a decrease in your amygdala during these components when you're dealing with fear, working with fear, acknowledging fear, or revisiting events which have elicited a fear response? Yeah, so it's an interesting question, right? Because a lot of times people use psychedelics. Uh, for example, you know, we've, we've learned from the recent documentary those, you know, people are using psilocybin uh, heroic those to, to manage um, you know, sort of existential fear, dread, mm. dealing with impending death. So I think there's there's a, a working theory, at least from a clinical point of view, whereby you know you can you can better enable patients to go into um, a state where fear doesn't become quite as crippling. So so you know relating to how the amygdala will behave, I think you know it's a it's a temporary deep decrease of amygdala activities that would enable the sort of um, processing and um, coming to terms with certain emotions being an external response to uh, a series of events rather than believing those emotions being part of you know your, your core being um, so so it's typically correlated to uh, a reduction of amygdala activity um, that, that basically would inhibit fear typically or other strong limbic emotions yeah and so, and now my next question, and I'm not sure if there's been research done on this because this is sort of a difficult thing to do research on, but in the event of an ego dissolution based on a high, high dose psychedelic experience, is there any research that indicates what's going on neurologically? Like I would imagine ego dissolution, you would have a very significant reduction in your DMN network, as well as a very, an explosion of activity in alternate areas. Yeah, I mean that's that's a great point. Um, I think that there's um, there's ought to be far more research than what we're seeing so far. Um, it, you know, in terms of extremely high dosage of uh, um, psychedelics, particularly two way agonists um, psychedelics um, that play with your default mode network, it's it's difficult. You know, particularly um, to you know the the, the sort of um, legal and operational um, sort of constraints aside, you know, it's difficult to pull off very well-constructed um, objective research um, because you're dealing with operational constraints of having to shove somebody into an fMRI mm -hmm. tube and, and 
you know, uh, if you've ever done you know, heroic pills of anything, you'd understand the difficulty. Yeah. You know, the being of, in the confined that, space. You know, I can, I can see yeah, how that would be. Yeah, not the most conducive to uh, to a good uh, good experience. I would certainly say, but you know, people have done it in the name of science, and and I think that um, electrical activity becomes a somewhat easier conduit. Um, into the sort of inside of the brain. But again, of course, you know, uh, topical EEG, you know, is constrained with um, the available technology. You can only pick up what's coming to the surface of the brain. So there's still great amount of information um, that can be lost in, in, you know, sort of the translation from subtle microscopic activities inside different neural networks to, you know, what you're measuring on top uh, top of your brain. It could be... um, lost in that aggregation in some sense but i think we're you know we're, we're definitely heading down to a healthy direction of using these advanced tools um, to help us understand you know uh, from a temporal and spatial uh, point of view what's what's happening in different neural networks how intensively are these markers that we can see and, and how are they correlating to uh, behavioral markers or uh, subjective observations um, of experiences so uh, I think there's a lot more that we can do. Uh, <laughs> you know, we're seeing a lot, a lot more experiments. You know, especially in, in sort of microdosing uh, space, uh, being investigated uh, both subjectively and, and and with more you know sort of uh, objective data sets like EEG and, and heart rate and other uh, biomarkers. So so I think that's a really healthy direction, and there's a lot more we can do. Certainly, it, it seems like. Uh, in this space than what's been done before. I actually really want to get into microdosing and EEG context within that, but there's this one question I want to ask you. You know, you brought up Chris Timmerman from Imperial College, and he, I believe in conjunction with Robin Carhart Harris, are doing studies right now with sustained DMT infusions, as well as a company called DMTX. And so, you know, doing a sustained DMT infusion and keeping someone in a state of an absolute breakthrough state in which you would have no concept or awareness of the outside world. You know, are they using fMRI in that? Are they using EEG? Are they using, you know, what is, what is the basis in which they're doing those studies? Because I, I'm super interested in those. (laughs) You know, I find that absolutely amazing. Yeah, absolutely, Adam. Likewise, um, you know, I've always had great respect with uh, to, to uh, Dr. Timmerman. I've met him, you know, at a at a conference in Berlin, sort of late twenty twenty one. You know, same with Dr. Carl Harris, obviously a, a beacon in, in the field of research. Um, from my limited understanding, I will say that the Dr. Timmerman, Dr. Roseman, uh, Leroy Roseman. Uh, one of these teammates, they're very, very good at uh, constructing studies with um, empirical observations based on EEG. Um, Why I don't think that, you know, we take off other things off the table like fMRI. I think, you know, the primary modality of, of investigation and measurement has been, you know, for the last four years, four or five years anyway, uh, EEG-based measurements. Um, they're just very, very experienced. They're very uh, uh, senior, serious scientists that, that are very well learned and very well referenced. Um, you know, true pioneers in the field in, in just about every way uh, in terms of incorporating EEG-based measurements. So um, I am not aware that they published anything, and this is just probably due to my total ignorance, um, that, that contain fRMI-based um, studies, although I'm, I'm you know, certainly not taking that off the table. Um, I think the more tools you can acquire to, mm. to understand different aspects of uh, brain change and, and neurological activities, the better. Uh, then again, 
you know, the, the flip side of the coin for that is the pragmatistic sort of side of it. it you know, how practical is it to shove somebody in an fMRI tube, um, you know, consistently and you know, during a microdosing experiment? Um, I certainly can't fathom that. Um, but, but maybe there's a there's a way to do it. You know, with more clinical nuance and rigor. Um, uh, you know, I look forward to to reading those studies because they they will review a different aspect hmm. of the, the neurological activities that we don't typically see on EEG. Um, you know, things like blood flow and, and, and really kind of... Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Using spatial. like DTI and morphometry and so forth in conjunction with your neurological activity. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, so yeah. you've, you're have you also involved, like your, your company, in uh, microdosing studies. And so mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about that. And I'd be super curious to know if there's any EEG changes while someone's on a microdosing regimen. Yeah, yeah. You know, th- that is the, the more exciting front because... Uh, well, you know, from from an application point of view, microdosing has seemed to to be uh, picking up a lot more more sort of conversation space and steam in terms of you know uh, applicability. I think you know it becomes a bit more accessible to more people in terms of you know using that to to augment um, uh, their own practices, whether it's to manage stress or, or find creativity. There's been a lot of conversation about microdosing. So certainly, um, you know, and the other thing that excites me is the the empirical research based on uh, hard biomarkers. I'm talking mm. about EEG, you know, fMRI, these kind of things uh, seem to be a lot more scant than, you know, compared to heroic dosage. So, for example, you know, we have, you know, Timmerman, we have a lot of other teams that have done EEG studies uh, on heroic dosages. I've so far managed to find one paper that actually talked about using EEG and studying microdosing. So this is a Brazilian team. And they did two dose, um, you know, double blind uh, crossover after one week was one placebo control. And the only thing they did was 500 milligrams, which is technically not a microdose. Yeah. It's, it's sort of on a gray zone. But the problem I had was that study, and I, I have all the respect for the scientists that designed that study because it's empirical and it's, it's evidence-based. But the problem with that is that, you know, you're not really going to see the change that you're hoping to see, the neurogenesis, the yeah. You need a prolonged score. period of use of an actual sub-psychedelic dose. Which, and again, too, right? Like, you know, the, what you were saying before is that microdosing is accessible. You know, yeah. I, I can take a microdose every other day. I can follow a numerous series of regimens, you know, the Fadiman protocol or whatever, and function as I would taking any other medication. And and you're right. Like, there, there's very limited research. Like, I think there's, you know, there's a company in New Zealand that's doing LSD microdosing. And mm-hmm. and it's so minimal, and everything seems to be focused on heroic doses, which is is wonderful and grand dose, and there's these profound experiences. But and I think for just general application of allowing the vast majority of people to have some sort of accessibility would primarily be microdosing. Yeah, hundred percent. And by the way, that research is conducted by uh, Kavina and Muller in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, they found very little. Um, sort of like significance, I guess, from an EEG point of view, the two things that have been cited from that paper, the Kavanaugh-Muller paper from 2019 is uh, increase of lymphozef complexity, again, entropy, and decrease of broadband power. Um, but but it was concluded uh, that no significant differences are found from the EEG kind of point of view. And, and there's also, you know, with the methodology of 500 milligrams, it's also yeah. a great expectancy of fact you hard it's hard to unblind somebody that you know is obviously feeling 
um, you know, a set of physiological impacts after ingesting 500 milligrams of, of truffles, right? So, <laughs> yeah, um, you know, so I think, I think there are some areas of improvement that perhaps can be, can be construed in the study design, which focuses a bit more longitudinally on, on the sort of, you know, slow yeah, like increase. Three um, or four, six month study of continuous sub-psychedelic dosing with an appropriate blind group that can actually, you know, the placebo effect, you know, you can actually measure that in this capacity, which is, which is kind of funny. And, you know, there's all these like, you know, memes and different things. And, you know, like there's the one of like having two groups, one's a placebo group and, and one's in the active medication, the active medication, they're all dancing and there's dancing a circle. Yes, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they're like, like, oh, well, yeah, I think we're we, in the control we group. know which one we are in. And I find that quite entertaining. And yeah. so thus far, that it's a reasonable statement to say is that there hasn't actually been a reasonable, appropriate microdosing study that has an amount of time to actually discern whether or not any of these neuroplastic, neurogenic processes are even occurring. I, I would say that that about checks out. Um, you know, I spoke with my my good friend, uh, um, you know, who's a chief science officer in one of the largest. Um, uh, compounds of discovery companies and and you know his position is similar we ought to be doing a lot more longitudinal stuff you know especially around compound that has neurogenesis properties yeah. you know how could you tell you know if there's any kind of impact after two weeks it's just simply you, you know it leaves a lot to be desired i guess um so so this is where you know i think the continued work uh in science and doing good science comes in it's really designing studies that can be more longitudinal, that can be more um, appropriate in terms of measuring those impacts um, uh, as they occur you know, over a period of time in sort of natural application. Well, let's say hypothetically there was a company that wanted to do a longitudinal study of microdosing with psilocybin. And let's just say it was a sub-psychedelic dose, an appropriate microdose, mm -hmm. and it was a six-month study what would you expect to see and what could EEG be able to measure in that capacity? Like, would you be able to tell there was neuroplasticity going on? Would the electrolyte activity be altered enough in which you could recognize that, okay, we're seeing new connections being formed? And would it be able to recognize neurogenesis in the sense of, okay, we're seeing an, an increase in activity from a resting state or from a task-oriented state? Yeah, that that's the million-dollar question, Adam. Certainly, um, you know, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be uh, very enthused as I am to to be you know involved in these studies if I didn't believe that we could see you know something. But but on the flip side of the coin, one must always be careful as expected to see the fact where yeah. confirmation know, really bias is down. a bitch. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. No. So uh, we're really trying to be very neutral in our expecting expectation about you know what we may or may not see. It's more about how do we reliably construct studies that that relies on as much empirical evidence um you know sort of um removed from bias removed from you know, confirmation bias or expectancy effect as we possibly can so you know speaking of neurogenesis there are ways that we can both you know in terms of baseline or functional studies understand you know the impact of neurogenesis in your neuron uh, coupled with an increase of activities that could be measured. So, you know, whether you're attaching microscopes into into mice or dissecting mm -hmm. mice brainstem, which is, I, I believe has already been done with yeah, psilocybin. A, the Brazilian study, uh, too, with 5-MeO-DMT fundamentally did something very similar. We're seeing neurogenesis in hippocampal regions of mice brains, which was pretty amazing. 
hundred percent. So, you know, assuming we're not going to dissect uh, live human subjects' brains, I think there may be, uh, you know, a great need to to construct a proxy in terms of neurophysiological signals that can uh, that can mm. have a pretty strong correlation to uh, even neurogenesis in certain parts of the brain, especially around the brainstem. Um, so, I think you know there, there are things that we've certainly uh, uh, been aware of that can be used to measure. Um, you know, density of neurons, you know, physiologically. So um, I think that these are sort of the, the multi-million dollar questions. How do we, how do we proxy that in a way that's, um, that could get us to scale, that could get us the reliability uh, without cutting somebody open? Yeah, <laughs> without physiologically seeing neurological changes. That's and right. so out of curiosity, you know, you're obviously very passionate about this you know, this is something that's very important to you. How did you get into working with psychedelics and DEG, right? Like, so, you know, what, what inspired you? What was your muse, so to speak? <laughs> well, how long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, anyway, we, we got time. Aside, we get into it. Kidding aside, I, I think just kind of uh, on a high level, I, I've always been a goody two-shoes. I've never, I've never even drank, you know, for our high school or early university, let alone done any kind of drugs. Um, not because I had some sort of preconceived notion, good or bad. It's just, you know, it wasn't my focus, but, um, I had the good fortune of leading, uh, a, a biomedical tech company, uh, as the CTO during the 2016 to 2018, uh, that was the EEG focused company as well, um, who had this, this has set as well as a cloud management system that allowed lifetime streaming and, and AI and machine learning based analysis and EEG signals. Um, to identify seizures, so that's that's kind of how I got bit by the bug. But um, seizures is a very very niche kind of market. Mm -hmm. It belongs to neurology, and, and you know you need a lot of money to break into the market. Uh, and long story short, you know the business didn't really make it um, because of the market and because of you know, economical situations. The company was in, but I was hired to develop a platform, and that was my passion to, to sort of wire these crazy looking headset gear. Um, you know, onto the cloud was a mobile app that, that captures and analyzes signal, you know, with high fidelity and, 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 you know, rapid response to see if somebody's having a seizure. Um, so at the end of that venture, I, I was invited to Burning Man um, by a, a few friends, uh, you know, as part of that camp. And, and I had a conference uh, right after Burning Man, I think the Monday after in, in Shanghai that I had to get to was OECD Conference of Neuroregulation uh, in 2018. So instead of flying all the way back to Toronto, which is where I live, you know, after Burning Man, I decided to, to bust down to San Francisco and then fly out of San Francisco to Shanghai for a shorter trip. Um, so I had this headset with me on the playa. And, you know, coincidentally or not, I had my first uh, significant, you know, uh, um, psychedelic experience while I was on the playa uh, with lovely candidates that, you know, narrated through the experience and, and really helped me kind of navigate that, that very altered state of consciousness, processing a, lot, processing a lot of stuff at the time. So um, I came back to the camp after a very long and meandering walk you know, throughout the night and, and still very altered. And I had this idea because I was going to give a talk on, in the camp about AI and machine learning and its impact on society and things like that. So I was feeling very inspired, I guess, and, and something came over me and I started tearing my talk notes apart and rebuilding this whole thing from scratch that morning. And I had this headset sitting in my suitcase because I, I was going to bring it to the conference with me. And I, I just had this thought. I said, what if I measure my brain waves right now? What would I see? 
you know, because I've done this a million times, uh, being the CTO of this company. And I took it out and I put it on my head and I did just about, I think, five minutes, you know, two minutes, eyes closed, three minutes, eyes open, something like that. And I found a couple of campmates that voluntarily donated their brain data as well, you know, some of this <laughs> and, you know, silver. Yeah. And uh, I basically coded everybody, um, you know, into two groups, doing some rogue citizen science. And uh, I saw the difference between group A and group B, group A being altered folks and group B being silver folks. Um, you know, and it was basically what I was describing in the beginning where you see this massive increase of <clears throat> opportunity in the ultra group that is uh, night and day, you know, compared to that of the sober group. You know, very, you know, streamlined cortical activities, a couple areas of lighting up, um, but, but rest is fairly quiet and sort of baseline mode, right? So uh, so this, this got my attention. I said, wow, this has got to be some sort of, weird mistake right like the, the brain can be that different so i repeated this experiment the next day and, and finding a few other folks around the camp that wanted to you know look at their brain when they're you know, altered by different kind of uh, uh, psychedelics and, and uh, compare them against the new batch of control which is you know people who are, who are relatively sober um and the same thing happened so so i posted this on facebook and <laughs> this caught the attention of uh, one of my co-founders back in 2018 she reached out to me right away said are you the, are you the guy with the has that on a playa. Um, and then uh, that was the start of, of my understanding to, you know, neurofeedback, uh, you know, Heather reached out, Heather Hargrace uh, was a therapist based in London. And she, you know, came to Toronto for a conference, a psychedelic research conference, a couple of weeks after I, I got back. And uh, she introduced me to the world of neurofeedback of using you know, brainwave as a tool to, to help modulate and, and you know, regulate different neurological activities. So my mind was blown. I was, you know, doing research on brainwaves for two and a half years and never heard of this, this whole discipline altogether. So, uh, and, and I think Heather's master's thesis, if I recall, was really the, the psychedelic state from one to 20 hertz, you know, using sort of non-psychedelic means and, and what does that have to do with brainwaves? So, so it's all about the very interesting topic that we've been talking about for 40 minutes here. So, um, so yeah, we, we decided to, you know, co-found a company around 2020 that, you know, focuses on using uh, EEG to uh, help understand and help improve mental health. And psychedelic research is obviously a big part of it. Uh, we started with a, a psychedelic research contract, um, uh, you know, working on DMT and, and ketamine data uh, from a company out west that's doing those sorts of compound, uh, you know, innovations. So uh, we designed a DMT trial and, and then a you know, ketamine trial off of that. Uh, and then that got us started into the sort of EEG game where we essentially we built our own platform that enables connectivity of, you know, mobile uh, accessible devices like these ones that are, you know, five to $700, put them easily on your head and uh, collect data in a longitudinal continuous fashion rather than you know, seeing the study be in this sort of single point where you stream a bunch of people in a clinical lab and then, you know, you discharge them and that will be the end of that. Um, you can really continuously monitor yourself or other people mm -hmm. with these kind of tools that are dry, uh, wireless and, and easily uh, applicable, right? So, so that's really, you know, that journey is still very much unfolding and, and, you know, there are many, many things that we think we can do with these devices to, to really um, democratize access to data. Well, yeah, uh, you could, you could really do crowdsources with that and then actually have groups globally engaging in various psychedelic activity wearing those that that's a 
a very interesting opportunity sitting right there. I wasn't aware that the the ease in which that could be done. You just slid that on your mm-hmm. head like you were going to go for a run or play tennis with a sweatband, and then you could record neurological activity. You got it, hundred percent. That is, and that's really how cool. easy collecting data should be. And I mean, in a way, you, you kind of look at these things that have been around for a while. And you know, I'm showing you my, my Apple Watch here. You know, this thing sits on my wrist, collects and you know my heart heartbeat and HIV. So that's that's a proxy of my parasympathetic system. Mm-hmm. Um, really, kind of uh, a single data point that can tell me what's going on. You know, in terms of my uh, uh, upregulation or downregulation of parasympathetic sense yeah. uh, through my heart rate. But you know, there's a whole plethora of information that you can gleam on that's much richer than a single data point if you look at you know a few inches up the stack right if you look at the brain you know there's a lot you can you can really figure out am i being very very you know introspective or am i being really you know outward focused or or am i being altered or am i feeling just kind of nice and warm and fuzzy um you know there's a lot more information that could be had you know in a way that uh, doesn't necessitate pulling somebody into a lab yeah, um, filled with white coats, right? So, um, yeah, I really want to commend this one company that I know of um, called Quantify Citizen. Um, what they've done is they've built a platform that that essentially democratizes research uh, in a, in an anonymous fashion with psychedelics using you know, subjective questionnaires and surveys. So these are important tools to collect experience in a totally anonymized, totally private uh, uh, sort of means. And they, you know, this allows uh, studies with data collection scale that we couldn't even begin to imagine previously uh, before its existence. So we kind of, you know, are inspired by the same line of thought, you know, with these devices, we can augment, you know, qualitative data sets with quantitative data sets that speak to, you know, sort of neurophysiology and, and brain activities rather than you know, how do I feel, which is important as well. But but, you know, you kind of need both sides of the coin. In order well, to, yeah, to subjective and objective data being, you know, mixed together to actually give accurate results because how I feel can change by a multitude of different reasons. My neurological activity probably is relatively consistent. So 100%. out of curiosity, you had mentioned, you know, a couple of minutes ago that your mind was blown by neurolinguistic feedback. Why don't you just give us sort of a high level? Like, I know that's in some circles is controversial, but the people who utilize it swear by it and it's changed lives and all these different things. So do you want to just give sort of a, you know, a fairly high level introductory crash course into neurolinguistic feedback? Yeah, for sure. You know, uh, neurofeedback is, is a practice, is a sort of a, uh, a tool um, that gets used in therapy very often. It uses um, the core principle of operating conditioning, which is you know really kind of concept in, in uh, uh, psych one hundred and one, um, to use kind of an objective to to steer your behavior. So neurofeedback is a tool that uses um, operating conditioning and positive feedback to steer the brain into um, you know behaving a certain way and ultimately uh, assist regulation of different parts of neurological activities such as the, the you know sort of default mode network the salience network the frontal executive network so it's a thing that you can uh, add into your tool set as a therapist or as a coach to help your patients uh, better regulate um, you know, whether it's default mode network uh, based anxiety or stress or frontal executive network based dysregulations in terms of cognitive performance or attentiveness um, or midbrain, you know, in terms of 
uh, emotional regulation control. So you can train to essentially make your brain stronger. It's kind of like taking your brain to the gym. Um, mm-hmm. And that benefit is sustainable. And it's an alternative for some cases of dysregulation to, you know, taking drugs. Um, for instance, particularly, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of positive results over the last 50 years that neurofeedback has been used on things like ADHD or things like, you know, trait-based anxiety, uh, where techniques have been used and have gotten very effective uh, compared to control, compared to, you know, use of drugs to help regulate the brain so would that simply be say there's a a specific emotion that's going on and then seeing a recognition of a specific brain wave and then you respond to that accordingly is is that like a really dumbed down sort of statement (laughs) (laughs) it's actually quite an accurate statement i wasn't going to mention brain waves but essentially what you're saying is is the core principle of operating conditioning using brain waves as, as a as a means to observe what's going on so for instance you know one of the quick protocols is you look at how much alpha has been produced on your occipital lobe or part of your default mode network you know and if you want to try to bring somebody you know down in terms of down regulating their their uh, default mode network their, their anxiety uh, one of the things you can do is you can reward the increase of production of alpha uh, on the default mode network so that that tends to produce um behavior longitudinally that that you know sort of uh, rewards the down regulation of um, the default mode network where there can be you know co- creating this kind of sense of quietness uh, amongst chaos so they, you can do this as a kind of a workout you can set 60 percent goal uh then you can you can achieve that and when you when you um score above threshold which is determined by the system you are rewarded by let's say the soothing sound of rain um, huh. that is something that creates uh, homeostasis neurologically because it's, it's soothing it the, the objective of the brain uh, based on evolutionary neuroscience is really um, attaining the state of homeostasis right it's neither you know high on valence nor on intensity um, it's really this kind of calm you know um, content feeling of wellness this is this is what the brain subconsciously stares to at all times um, and this impacts every facet of our decision making so by creating these kind of pleasant you know visual auditory reward we encourage the brain to steer towards homeostasis um, with the guidance of EEG so we can, we can use an alpha-based protocol to pump somebody full of alpha in the back of the brain, but we must be careful with that because the, you know, if there's any kind of trauma, they could overreact. So there's a lot of nuance in, in sort of manipulating um, different frequencies of, of uh, brain waves in different parts. Um, you know, for example, the, the other thing you can do is you can manage to um, increase the production of low beta. Uh, some literature refer this to uh, refer to this as SMR. Or sensory motor band yeah. or sensory yeah. motor region, so that refers to brain width between twelve to fifteen hertz. Um, and you know, when you start having a robust uh, low beta production in the midbrain, it helps regulate you know uh, sort of healthy, open kind of focus and attention. Uh, so this this helps cases of inattentiveness or, or frazzled brain or kind of things that just have to do with attentiveness and, and anxiety. So. Uh, increasing mid, uh, low to mid beta and mid brain is a typical uh, uh, process as well. So, you know, we, we look at 
you know, obviously more sophisticated versions of this um, to determine the functioning, um, the functioning sort of properties of different parts of your brain. So um, in Divergence, we've created a platform that essentially measures foresights. Um, in under five minutes, we can generate 21 neurometrics um, you know, from the back brain to the midbrain to the front brain that systematically uh, helps a therapist understand uh, what may be some of the latent traits uh, or, or you know, sort of traits that have to do with neurological, physiological activities rather than you know, questionnaires and you know, subjective, this is how I feel. So based on those traits, you know, we can create the sort of roadmap and, and you know, a kind of a progress tracking mechanism to understand if certain practice like increasing, you know, occipital alpha uh, would correlate to recovery from, you know, highly anxious kind of behavior or, or feeling uh, crippled by anxiety. So we can start tracking both um, subjective and objective data sets. So that, that's really where the, where the impact is, is you can showcase the progress to a patient um, you know, not only relying on how they're feeling subjectively, but really, um, you know, what, whether the, you know, the practice or intervention is moving the dial, uh, you know, in terms of uh, the brainwaves, that, that becomes very powerful because it externalizes the progress, externalizes these biomarkers, and they can see it right in front of their eyes, and it creates a powerful uh, self-efficacy that, you know, you know, they can visualize the success and it and really builds them up to the next level of success. And we do see a lot of success, you know, uh, working with certain dysregulations. You know, that being said, it's not, you know, not by any means panacea. You can't just, you know, cure stuff with neurofeedback. That's not how we must look at it. It's like going an to the gym. It's an adjunct therapy to some extent. It's, a, it's yeah. an adjunct. It's a tool. Um, it is effective, uh, more effective to certain things than other things. But at the end of the day, it's really... Um, you know, brain training and self-development to increase self-advocacy, to increase neuroregulation and uh, uh, resilience. That, that's really what this is about. And now at risk of stating the obvious, I feel like this can be done at home, right? Like, you know, with your headband sort of EEG cap. So all of this could be done at home in conjunction with your employees, your programs and so forth. 100%. Yes. So our platform um, is built with, you know, remote training and at-home training in mind. So, you know, just a bit of context, neurofeedback is not a new thing. Uh, as I mentioned, it's been done for the last 50 years or so, but a um, big part of the issue is that a lot of systems uh, that are still being used out there clinically are very um, clunky and they're very uh, uh, expensive and, and large. So, you know, it's difficult to conceptualize how somebody would, would ship a system that has a ton of wires, requires gel and a full cap and a Windows desktop um, and, you know, 20 minutes of prep time before you start doing anything. You know, it's just hard to conceptualize how that would be, you know, um, democratized, right, for, mm, for most people yeah. to enjoy because unless you pay, you know, $120 and you check yourself in a clinic for you know, 45 minutes and have somebody wire you up, um, <laughs> yeah. you're just not getting the benefit. So you know, our system is very much the opposite of that. So. Uh, as you just see, you know, I just put this thing on and less than about 20 seconds, I can start streaming you know, EEG and I can have the, the pleasant visual and auditory feedback in front of my eyes with my cell phone. And all that data streamed to the cloud and the therapist. Do you guys utilize therapist. artificial reality headsets and stuff like that? Uh, we we do not at this point yet. Um, you know, I think 
it's not hard. Yeah, it's not a hard stress to imagine that you know if we have a, a, a demilitarized enough uh, device. You know, working with a single channel device now that's so small that you can literally outfit it anywhere. Uh, you know, at that point, we will have any kind of integration to peripherals, including AR and VR. Um, so that that's a natural extension. Um, to smartphones, but we are on the smartphones, we're on tablets um, right now in, in terms of the, uh, the client-facing piece, yes. Hmm. So out of, out of curiosity, so say one of our listeners wanted to engage in neural feedback and they contacted mm-hmm. you, what, what kind of cost is associated with this? Yeah, so we currently work with uh, professionals, so either therapists or, or coaches, and, and you know, we were to work with a coach or a therapist. It's uh, it's about one hundred twenty dollars a month to start, and with mm-hmm. that, you know, they get a seat of five, so they can take up on you know, say five clients at one time. Um, so that spreads the per client cost about twenty five dollars a month. Um, so we don't work directly with with end users because, mm-hmm. um, you know, we want to make sure that you know, neurofeedback is done in the context of therapy, and there's still a therapeutic component to using a tool, right? It's not a, you know, here's a pill and you just take it off. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, we don't think that that optimizes the efficacy or, or outcome. Um, you know, I, my personal opinion is that, uh, you know, if you are looking for neurofeedback um, as, an, uh, as a tool, as an augmented uh, augmentation of your current practice and tool sets, uh, work with a professional. There are many professionals that are on our platform that uses divergence to work with their clients. Um, you, you know, you can mention, hey, you know, do you do remote neurofeedback? feedback? Have you heard of divergence? And, um, and you know, chances are your therapist has, and they can they can onboard themselves on the platform and provide that service for you. No, oh, that's that's really awesome. And so we're sort of coming to a close right now. And is there anything that you want to? Talk about plug anything that you're doing that's awesome in the very near future that you want to mention or anything along those lines. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And and I think the only thing I I want to just you know reemphasize I've already talked about this is you know we're focusing on bringing this to everybody uh, by reducing the barrier of entrance. Whether you're a professional that practices neurotherapy and neurofeedback as part of your practice, or you're an end user who's trying to improve your mental health, you know, there's many ways to look at this. Um, so we continue to work on, you know, bringing better, cheaper, more accessible, and um, uh, more user-friendly devices and software. Um, so it's exciting time to do this. And I think, you know, um, in conjunction with psychedelics, um, you know, we need more research. We need more better science to to support uh, the, the findings, to support the numbers that we're seeing, um, and we need more conversation. So, you know, thank you for doing what you're doing. This is immensely valuable um, to have these conversations and to continue to sort of educate the public about the benefit of evidence-based medicine. So, thank you. Well, no, it's my, it's my pleasure. I, I very much enjoyed the conversation and. You know, we might have a collaboration coming up in the near future regarding an appropriate microdosing, and I would love to have you back on again after that gets rolling to have a conversation about that. And so, again, I very much appreciate your time, and it was a pleasure speaking with you, Alex. Pleasure is on my Adam. Thank you very much, and look forward to our collaboration in the future. Mm-hmm. Thanks.